receive a gift from God. Sometime tonight, a gift is going to arrive at your house from God. Once you get over the terror of that thought, what sort of excitement would set in? What kind of gift would you expect God to give? You, if you had to guess, you might think of something big, grand, something heavenly, something amazing. Maybe he gives you unlimited wealth to do good with. Maybe he would heal you of some disease. Uh, maybe he would give you extraordinary knowledge that would benefit all mankind. Maybe you've had a prayer request you've been carrying for years and years, and maybe tonight uh, he, his gift to you is that he answers that prayer request. The bottom line is you would expect something huge, something significant. And so tonight your doorbell rings, and you go nervously to the front door, you open it, and there's a box on your porch, and you know this is it. This is the gift. There's light that somehow is, is peeking out through the little folds of the box, and you pick it up, and you open the box, and inside you find peace. And I don't know what that looks like, and I don't know how you recognize it, but you just know you open the box, and there inside is the peace of God. And that's not at all what you expected. So how do you respond in that moment? I, I think you might respond the way all of us respond when we open a gift that we don't particularly want. You immediately go high-pitched and you say something nice. Oh, thank you. This is so great. It's perfect. We all do, Pay attention. This Christmas season, someone's going to open a gift and go high-pitched. And you're going to know, mm-hmm. I heard about this. I know all about it, for sure. Because here's the deal. Is peace on your radar? Like, is that something you've been praying for? Have you ever prayed for peace? If I were to ask you, name your top five felt needs. Would peace make your top 20? I mean, in this imaginary scenario, it's really not all that imaginary Honestly, because every Christmas we sit with Luke's story of the birth of Jesus and we are poised to receive a gift. And so we read the angel's words, peace on earth to people he favors. And at that line we might yawn or we might find it cliche or we might find it unnecessary or we might think it's only future tense. And so upon another reading of the Christmas story, we respond by saying, oh, isn't that nice? What a sweet story. Oh, it means so much. We don't understand how much we need God's peace. Not only do we not understand how much we need it, we don't even know how to define it. We don't know what it is. We've become so accustomed to living in conflict that much of our praying is just, God, make me comfortable in the conflict. We're not seeking peace. We're not asking for it. We're not looking for it. And that's okay because God's peace finds us. And that's where our focus is this morning. You need the peace of God more than you can understand. And God has it in full to give to you through Jesus Christ. Those who follow Jesus are to live in his peace and to share his peace with others. 
And so my purpose in preaching this passage today is to give you a proper understanding of what God's peace is and then from the text to inspire you to live as a peacemaker. And today we'll accomplish that by answering three questions about peace from this passage. Okay? So I want you to follow along with me as I read Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. So our focus this morning is on peace. And I want to answer three common questions about peace so that we understand what it is and its impact on our own lives. And for the sake of ease in note-taking, if you're going to take a few notes this morning, I'll share the question on the slide and the answer will be right beneath it. So don't feel like you've got to be in a a mad rush to just scribble it down. You've got time, and then we'll go to the text and unpack that answer together. The first question about peace we want to answer this morning is this. How does peace come? How does peace come to you and I? And the answer is this. Peace is the gracious, merciful gift of God in the person of Jesus Christ. It's a gracious, merciful gift of God in the person of Jesus Christ. So the holy visitation comes to shepherds in a field. And when I read that, there was no surprise on your part. You were not shocked. You were not in awe. No one goes, shepherds, never saw it coming. No, we've read the story 8 billion times and this detail is just so commonplace. I want to recommend that we keep this story secret until people turn about 30 years old. Get out of adolescence, get a few wounds in your story, and then at your 30th birthday, we take you in a secret room and we finally read this story to you so that the shock of it would land on you appropriately. That the announcement comes to shepherds in a field, not a king in a palace and not a priest in the temple. It comes to shepherds in a field. And why is that? Because this is all of God's grace. When we try to make sense of why shepherds, and why in particular these shepherds, we have to be careful that we don't think of them higher than we ought to or lower than we ought to. Uh, Luke doesn't give us the answers why. He just tells us, shepherds, boom, there's the angel. So what do I mean when I say we shouldn't think higher of them? Well, you could make this argument. You could say, well, it's obvious that they were chosen by God for a reason. They've carried the promise of the Messiah with them their whole lives. And even on this night, they were poised and waiting for the good news that the Messiah has come. But Luke doesn't tell us that. 
that's putting way too much on these shepherds. We shouldn't think higher of them in this way, nor should we think lower of them. We might be tempted to say, ah, shepherds, scum of the earth, bottom of the social ladder, just, you know, this is basically like a work release type deal. These guys are problems. They're, they're not blue collar, they're brown collar, just, and, and, and so and God brings the announcement to them. But again, Luke doesn't tell us that. He doesn't make them worse. He doesn't make them great. They're not a messianic watch party, nor are they some set of criminals. They're just shepherds. And here's what we know for sure, because they are shepherds. We know they are poor. We know they exist low on a social ladder. We also know this. They are sinners. Sinners like me and you. Sinners against God. Regardless of their background, their heritage, any of that, they're sinners separated from God by their sin. So what that tells us is that this announcement is a gift of God's grace to them. The shepherds did not deserve an audience with the angels. They did not earn it. God in His grace just comes to these shepherds in the field. But not only does peace come to them by God's grace, but also by God's mercy. Did you see at the end of uh, was it verse 9, how the shepherds are described to us? We're told they were terrified. And what are the angel's first words to them? The angel says, don't be afraid. Then why would they be afraid? Well, look, for sure you would be afraid, I would be afraid if all of a sudden an angel of the Lord appeared in front of us. None of us would slap the angel a high five and be like, ha, about time. Been waiting on you. Finally you're here. Let's do some work. No, we would lose our minds in terror. And that terror is describable. That terror comes from this. It's the sudden awareness of our utter sinfulness in God's infinite holiness. And when sinful man is in the presence of the holiness of God in any form, we suddenly realize the punishment our sin requires and deserves. So the terror of the shepherds on this night is a terror that accompanies an awareness that this angel probably should come with a sword for me. Think about the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, he stands before God in his throne room. And how does Isaiah respond in that moment? He says, woe is me, for I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of armies. He's the prophet. He's God's man doing God's work, God's voice to God's people. And as he stands in the presence of God, he understands, I'm undone. Woe is me. But the shepherd didn't, or excuse me, the angel didn't come with a sword on that night. The angel came with a song and an announcement. And this is mercy to these shepherds. We've talked about this before. I think it's good that we would revisit it from time to time just to make sure we understand that difference between grace and mercy. Grace is when we get the good thing we don't deserve. Mercy is when we do not get the negative thing we do deserve. In this instance, the shepherds are shown grace and that they get the holy announcement. And they are shown mercy and that the announcement is good news and not judgment on their heads. Imagine if God had asked the world for their opinion on his plan to make this announcement to shepherds. God would say, hey, it's the night, send in my angels, we're going to let people know, I'm going to announce it to this group of shepherds. The world might have said, not the shepherds, they don't deserve this. 
And God would say, oh, that's precisely why I'm giving this announcement to them. It's grace. And then the world might say, not the shepherds. They're filthy. They deserve to be cast out. And God would say, that's why I'm bringing them in. It's mercy. God's peace comes to us in his grace and in his mercy. But that's not all. It's the gracious, merciful gift of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Last week, when Pastor Mike uh, preached to us about hope, he, he made this statement. He said, uh, our hope is not in theological principles or concepts. Our hope is in a person. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. And we can speak of peace in the same way. Peace for the Christian is not some theological ideal. It's not some vague notion in a far-off distant land. Peace is a person. Peace is Jesus Christ. So look at the angel's message in verse 11 to the shepherds. The angel says this, Today in the city of David a Savior was born for you who is the Messiah, the Lord. In that simple sentence, there is a lot to unpack as he describes who this child is. I wish we had time to really soak in it properly, but here's what the angel says. First, he begins with some geography. Here's where you're going to find the baby in the city of David. The city of David's not Jerusalem. The city of David is Bethlehem. If you and I were inventing this story, though, we would put the birth of the Christ child in the most prominent city, in the biggest place, the most holy place, that would be Jerusalem. But that's not what happens here. The baby is born in Bethlehem, a nothing town. No, no one cares about Bethlehem. No one knows where it is. It is just a, a, a speck on the map. No one cares. But God knows it. And the reason this is significant is because long before this night, in fact, hundreds of years before this very night, the prophet Micah prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Here's what he said in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. He said, But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. We read from Micah chapter 5 just a little bit ago in our responsive reading. So verse 2 says that Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. If you were to keep reading Micah chapter 5, you would get to verse 4, and the first line there says of the Messiah, he will stand and shepherd his people. In the very next verse, verse 5 says this, he will be their peace. He's not bringing peace. He's not going to manufacture peace. He himself is the peace. The baby born in Bethlehem is the promised Messiah who will shepherd his people and be their peace. Having spoken of this fulfilled prophecy, the city of David, the angel next references the baby by three titles. He doesn't call him by name. He doesn't say, Jesus is born to you. The shepherds don't know that name, but they know these titles. First, he's a savior. That means he is the promised one who will redeem his people from their sin and guilt. Second, he's the Messiah. That means he's the anointed one, promised by God, sent by God to do this work uniquely and alone. Third, he's the Lord. That means he's the one who reigns over all creation, the one who we live our lives in submission to. And so this child born in Bethlehem is our Savior, Messiah, Lord. To call Jesus Lord in the first century was a very bold statement because in this kingdom, this Roman Empire, there already was a Lord, and he was the Caesar. Little 
town of Bethlehem existed in the big empire of Rome. And about 20 years before Jesus was born, there was a Caesar, an emperor, who sat on the throne who changed the world for a long time. His name was Caesar Augustus. He had unprecedented power, unprecedented success, unprecedented wealth. So much so that a cult was created around him. There was this blending of loyalty to Rome, your Roman citizenship, and also your worship. And so Caesar Augustus was more than a man, but less than a god. He was a blending of the two. And so there was a phrase popular at this time, Caesar is Lord. Not a Lord, not a political Lord versus a religious Lord. He's just, boom, it, Lord, he reigns. I want you to see what some ancient historians wrote about Caesar Augustus and the way that people in Jesus' world thought about him. Listen to what these historians said. Horace wrote this of Caesar Augustus. He said, Thine age, O Augustus, has brought back fertile crops to the fields, has wiped away our sins, and revived the ancient virtues. As long as Augustus is the guardian of the state, neither civil dissension nor violence shall banish peace. And then Virgil wrote this, This is he whom thou so often here promised to thee, Augustus Caesar, son of a god, who shall again set up the golden age. The rule of Caesar Augustus began a 200-year period of history known as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. However, no matter what Caesar said of himself or what his subjects said or historians said, he was not the Savior, Messiah, Lord, fulfilling the promise of God. He himself was not peace. He himself did not have peace. He has every army, every bit of gold, every bit of power, and Caesar Augustus had no peace because he did not know God. To say that Jesus is Lord or to say that he is peace is to make a statement of exclusivity. Jesus did not achieve peace by joining himself with Caesar's army and wealth. He is peace himself, independent of all rulers, all nations, all flags, above all rulers, nations, and flags. Jesus alone is Savior, Messiah, Lord. Jesus is our peace. His is not the Pax Romana. His is not the Pax Americana. His is Pax Cosmos. He reigns supreme over every particle in creation. And at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He himself is the Lord over all creation. He himself is our peace. How does peace come to us? Graciously and mercifully, the gift of God in the person of Jesus Christ. There's a second question we want to wrestle with in this passage, and that question is this. What does peace mean? We know how it comes to us in the person of Jesus, but just the very idea itself, what are we talking about when we're talking about peace? Quite simply, Jesus restores all things to God's original design, and his children enjoy eternal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. So the angel makes his announcement to the shepherds, and then all of a sudden he's joined by this choir of other angels, and they sing a simple but profound song. The lyrics are in verse 14. Glory to God in the highest heaven, and peace on earth to people he favors. 
So at the news of Christ coming, the response is always glory to God, always. Mary glorified God in her song that Pastor Steve read just a little bit ago. Zechariah praises God earlier in Luke chapter 1. Simeon and Anna are going to praise God when they see the Christ child as well. And so the angels also, right here, they also praise God. God gets the glory, and what do people get? Well, according to the song, we get peace. So it's important that we understand what we mean when we're talking about peace. We, use, com, or we commonly use the word peace to describe an absence of turmoil or warfare. Peace between nations means that fighting has stopped. Peace on the water means the waves are calm. Inner peace means you have this sense of rest and assuredness about you. And all of these are different facets of understanding this grand word. All of those facets have an element of truth and accuracy in them, but none of the ways we use the word peace really encompasses its full meaning as God intended and designed it. If you picked up the sermon study guide for this Sunday, I shared with you in that guide a quote from a, a Christian writer and scholar, a man named uh, or Calvin Plantinga, and, or excuse me, Cornelius Plantinga. And he's a brilliant man, and I'm, we're lucky he's on our side. I think we're lucky. It's great that he's on our side, the side of the cross. And he wrote this great book and a wonderful accompanying essay a while back that describes what peace is. The word the Bible uses is shalom. And I want you to see what Plantinga says about peace, about biblical peace. It's a little long, so bear with me. Here's what he writes. He says, The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. In English, we call it peace, but it means far more than just peace of mind or ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as the Creator and Savior opens doors and speaks welcome to the creatures in whom He delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things are supposed to be. In some, shalom is God's designed plan for creation and redemption. Sin is blamable human vandalism of these great realities and therefore an affront to their architect and builder. So then, with this definition in mind, to say that Jesus is peace is to say that He is the one who webs together God and people. He achieves justice fulfillment and delight between God and people. He removes our sin that has vandalized God's designed plan and he makes universal flourishing possible. And how does he do that? How does Jesus accomplish or establish this peace? Well, the Bible's not silent on this. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53:5 tells us this, the punishment that brought us peace was laid on him. Similarly, the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 19, says that through Jesus, God reconciled everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross. So Jesus, our gracious, merciful shepherd, took the punishment that we deserve for our sin so that we can have peace with God and peace on earth. Peace comes to us 
through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to speak to you directly just for a few moments. Uh, The Bible has a diagnosis for you, for all of us, in fact. And year after year, you've probably heard this story. Every Christmas, you hear some of these similar themes. This is the time to believe what the Bible says about you. The Bible says this, you don't have peace. Now, you might push back and say, Cody, you don't, you don't know anything about me. You don't know my life, my situation. I've got a lot of needs, but peace is not something I need. I've got peace. And, and I, I wonder what you would list as evidence that you possess peace. You might say, I've, I've got this great job, or I've got this title. I've got the respect of people. Uh, my home is uh, at, in calm, and, and my relationships are all right, and I've got toys to occupy my time. Or I, I've, I've got peace. I'm good there. And all that argument would show is how little you understand of God's peace And how inappropriate your relationships are with the things in your life and the people in your life. You're asking them to do things they were never designed to do and never can do. They cannot give you the kind of peace that God alone can give you in Jesus Christ. They never will. Your spouse, your kids, your job, your wealth, none of it will ever give you the peace of God. And that's not just true for you, that's true for all of us. This diagnosis is true for all people. But the reality is we don't have peace apart from God. I mean, the angels, when they sang their song, they didn't stop mid-sentence and say, oh, oh, you already have peace. We didn't know that. We were misinformed. We were told wrong. Go back about your business and we'll see you later. No. They didn't say, oh, you've got Caesar. You don't need this. They look at Caesar and the sort of peace he brings... And they say, you've got nothing. You've got nothing. But God loves you, and he will give this to you through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. So let this be the year that you're convinced of God's love for you. Let this be the year that you receive the peace that he has for you. You're loved with all of your mess and all of your brokenness. You are loved, and there is new life for you in Jesus Christ who died in your place for your sin He did what only he could do. No one else could do this. And if you will turn from your sin, your brokenness, even all the things that you think you have to your credit, if you'll leave that behind and you'll just give everything to Jesus Christ, trust entirely in him, the one who died and rose again, you'll have peace with God. Your life will be transformed. Your eternity is set. You will be his child. He will be your father. And peace will be yours. So what is the meaning of peace? Was that Jesus restores all things to God's original design. And his children enjoy eternal flourishing wholeness and delight. Last question we need to wrestle with this morning. What does peace produce? Like what's the practical outworking of God's peace in our lives? And the simple answer is that God's peace turns us into peacemakers. So the song is over. The angels leave. I love Luke's description of the shepherds in verse 16. They hurried off. They didn't waste any time. They had to see the baby the angels sang about, and they quickly find Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the feed trough just as the angels said. There's something different about the shepherds. Uh, This will be a conversation for another time or a study for another time, but 
they go from sleepy shepherds in a field to men who have seen and beheld glory, and they've seen the Christ child. And as you continue to read the story, they go in and begin to announce it to others. They do the same kind of work the angels were just doing. They are now the heavenly messengers. They're now the ones with the story. They're the ones spewing the glory of God and inviting everyone to come and see this child. They're changed. They're transformed. They've heard the song of peace, and now they go and announce the message of peace to those around them. And so then the question comes to us, uh, how does this peace on earth impact our actual lives? Well, first and foremost, when we think of God's peace on earth, it's right for us to think about it as a future tense peace, meaning there's a day to come in which Jesus sets everything right finally, utterly, totally, completely, a day when there will be no more crying or death or pain, when the old order of things are passed away and all things have been new, that day is on the horizon, that eternal day for God's people, for God's glory forever. But God's peace does not just exist in a future tense place or time. When the angels sang the song, they didn't sing, there will be peace on earth. They sang, peace on earth, as in it is here, it's now, it's a reality that can be experienced and known in this very life. And so we shouldn't think about God's peace as something we just will experience when we're floating on clouds, playing harps, and doing whatever that is. It's for this life, this moment, this day right now, it is a peace that can impact our lives and transform us. Jesus himself taught us this. In Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, that opening section that's called the Beatitudes, Jesus said this in Matthew 5 verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. His understanding was that people who knew the peace of God would themselves be peacemakers. That has a present tense implication. That's in the here and now. That's not just future tense. It's this life, this day, this moment. So every Christian is meant to be a peacemaker. Following Christ's example, we are to actively pursue peace and strive for peace with all people. And as far as it depends on us, live at peace with all people. We know that peacemaking is first and foremost God's work. And we have to always remember, how is it that God makes peace? It's reconciliation through self-sacrifice. Reconciliation through self-sacrifice is the work of peacemaking. It's hardly surprising then that Jesus would say the blessing that comes to peacemakers is that they will be called sons of God because peacemakers are seeking to do what their heavenly Father has done, loving people with His love. Now, again, this is where you get to push back and, and you get to say, Cody, this all sounds nice, but ultimately, isn't it just idealistic? Because there's a lot about my life right now that I would not call peace. I've got this situation, this conflict, this problem's happening. It doesn't feel like peace on earth right now where I walk. And that's, that's right, and that's okay. Jesus prepared us for this moment as well. In John 16, Jesus said this. He said, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. So we have these two existing realities. 
One is that we have the peace of Christ in our hearts, in our lives, and we also have suffering in this world. Those two things do not cancel each other out. They exist side by side. And so the work of peacemakers is to increase peace, to use the words of James in James 3.18, to cultivate peace over and against human suffering. We know there's a day that's coming when that suffering is done and God's peace reigns supreme forever and ever. But for now, for this temporary little blip on creation's radar, we live side by side with the peace of Christ and the suffering in this world. So then how do, how do peacemakers make peace? How do we cultivate peace? Two ways. First of all, we make peace by sharing the gospel. That is the first, foremost, most important way. The most essential peace that all people need is peace with God. Apart from that, they, they won't know peace. It's impossible. So that means you, friend, if you're going to be a blessed peacemaker, you've got to tell people about Jesus Christ. You've got to share the gospel with people in your lives. You have to leverage conversations towards Jesus Christ. You have to be strategic Sly as a serpent, harmless as a dove, so that you put Jesus in the ears and hearts of the people around you. God has put you here for this very work. The Holy Spirit fills you for this very proclamation. You have divine power in you to tell the story of Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and coming again, so that we can add to that heavenly choir voices who will sing glory to God in the highest. That's what you do as a peacemaker. Brother and sister, you have to have a verbal witness. God has empowered you. The Holy Spirit fills you for this. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. You are a peacemaker when you share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people. Not only that, but along with that, you're also a peacemaker when you take action against the sin in our world that vandalizes the peace of God. Whenever you help a person in need, you're giving them a small glimpse of the abundance of God's glory to come. And by that act, you may just give the gospel a hearing. So to be mindful about others, to, be, to carry a holy anger at sin and its manifestations in the world around us, when we act against those things in the name of Christ for the glory of God, we're making peace. We're sharing the gospel we're acting against sin. This is how you and I are peacemakers. So we answered three questions today. First was, how does peace come to us? It's in the gracious and merciful person of Jesus Christ. Second, what does peace look like? It's Jesus restoring all things to God's original design. And then third, what does peace produce? It produces peacemakers. So, brother and sister Christian, are you at peace in Christ today, or are you living in turmoil? I mean, it's entirely possible to have peace with God in a salvation sense, but then to still live in crisis due to sin or hardship. So do you have peace of heart or not? Are your thoughts more like war than they are of peace? Are you content living that way? Are you okay with that? Or if there was an alternative, if there was a way to move past that warfare, that crisis and turmoil into the peace of God reigning in your heart, wouldn't you want to know that? Well, there is something you can do today. There's a way that you can step from warfare 
into peace and begin to live and take part in Christ's peacemaking mission. And the Apostle Paul tells us how. He shows us how you and I are to quiet our inner warfare. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, listen to what he says. Don't worry about anything. But in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Don't write this off as cliche or common or far too simple. I want you to feel the, the atomic power in this promise. Don't worry. Give everything to God through prayer with thanksgiving. So if today you do not have Christ's peace, it's because you're carrying things you were not meant to carry. You have taken on yourself burdens that you were not meant to take on your own. And in doing so, what, you are, what you're doing is you are refusing to trust Christ. You're saying this, you're saying, Jesus, I've got a problem. I need resolution now, so I'm going to fix it in my power and in my way. In Jesus' name, amen. Give me the strength to do this. And then you go at it, arms flailing, just doing whatever you can in your finite knowledge, in your finite power to fix the problem that only God can fix. And in doing that, we're not showing great trust and faith in Christ. Instead, we're showing great trust in ourselves. We pick up those burdens. We're taking this warfare. We're creating this crisis, stoking it more and more. When instead, what God's people at peace with God should do is not worry about it. But go to God in prayer. Give it to Him with thanksgiving. Let Him bear this burden. And when you do that, the peace of Christ will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Is that true or not? Is that true or not? If I give this to God in prayer, will the peace of Christ guard my heart and my mind? Is that true or not? If it's true, then sister, do it. And if it's true, brother, anchor your heart in this. Give that to God in prayer. And He'll guide you in whatever's to come next. If there's steps you need to take, something you need to do, something you need to say, He'll guide you. But this is how Broken marriages are put together again. And this is how we're set free from addictions. And this is how we find endurance to make it through the trial we're facing. And this is how we might take a hard diagnosis and live it out for the glory of God when we rest in Christ and let His peace protect our hearts and protect our minds. Why would you follow such cliche advice from Paul? I think you would follow it because it's not original to Paul. First, it came from Jesus Christ. And Jesus said this in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So may we cherish and cultivate the peace of Christ with hearts untroubled and unafraid. Now, normally, this is the place in the sermon where I would close in prayer, but today we're going to close in just a little bit of a different way. It's still in prayer, but I want to give you a few moments of quiet to pray on your own. 
so that you might make your request known to God. Let's put into practice what Paul told us to do here in Philippians chapter 4. You can do this more, longer, later, but let's start here and now just with simple words of prayer. Jesus, this is my burden. This is my crisis. This is my warfare. With thanksgiving, I'm entrusting this to you, and I'm going to go in your peace. Let's bow our heads, take a moment in quiet to pray, and then here in just a minute or so, I'll close this in a word of prayer. Lord God, you, you've heard our prayers. And as we entrust these situations to you, grant us your peace to guard our hearts and minds. And since we are at peace with you, grant us the courage to live as peacemakers so that we might add voices to the choir that sings glory to God in the highest heavens. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.